On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the June 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Paul Merrick, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine from Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. He's going to talk about his article, Hydrocortisone, Vitamin C, and Thymine for the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock, a Retrospective Before and After Study. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Sure, Kyle. It's a pleasure. My next guest is Dr. Helene Ottomans, Professor of Medicine from the Department of Intensive Care, the VU University Medical Center in Amsterdam, the Netherlands here to discuss her accompanying editorial, How to Give Vitamin C a Cautious but Fair Chance in Severe Sepsis. Helene, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Okay, so, Paul, you know, we've got a lot of people listening, so set the stage for us. I mean, you know, so if, if people aren't aware of, of prior literature surrounding vitamin C or just sort of mentally always thought of it as just one of those vitamins, you know, how in the world, you know, what was the basis to even start to look at this? So before we get even into your data and, and what you found, set some stage for us. Give us some background. Yeah, so I think it's a really important question because a lot of the critics have kind of, you know, have the attitude that we just sucked this out of our thumb and this just came out of thin air. But the reality is, is in fact, there's an enormous amount of basic science and clinical literature you know, really dating back to James Lynn's first randomized controlled trial in 1747. Um, this, in fact, was the first randomized controlled trial ever done in clinical medicine. And, you know, since then, actually, there is a, a, an enormous amount of, of basic science and clinical science um, looking at the pathophysiology and the mechanisms involved in vitamin C. And the data is extraordinarily robust. And, you know, anyone who reviews the literature would have to say to themselves, why has nobody ever done this before? There's just such an overwhelming abundance of literature published in really reputable journals that show such a marked uh, therapeutic benefit such a marked safety profile, as well as a very sound mechanistic basis. So I think it's really important to realize this was not just something that, you know, was sucked out of thin air. It basically has a really strong mechanistic basis. Well, and both your articles do a nice job of giving us a, a great reference list, a very exhaustive reference list, and, and reviewing the science. And, and short of having you give us a review article here on the phone, um, would you be able to sort of summarize or highlight some of the key uh, findings in that prior literature that you know, made you want to go explore this. Um, yeah. You know, there's obviously lots of different things that have come out in regards to vitamin C and its effect at a cellular level and, 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 and so forth. But can you, can, you know, what were the highlights that, that really got you excited to want to explore this clinically? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a really good question. And obviously, you know, when we started on this journey, I didn't know what I know now. And to be honest, I learned something new every day. So, you know, we've just embarking on this journey. Probably right. the most important thing that I've learned is that I don't consider vitamin C a micronutrient. It's actually a stress hormone that people don't actually recognize. This is a stress hormone. So, you know, one has to go through the physiology. And the other important thing is that primates and guinea pigs are the only species on this planet that do not synthesize vitamin C. 
So most animals, for example, a goat. So Linus Pauling knew a goat makes about 13 grams a day, and that when it's stressed, it significantly increases its production of vitamin C. With modern scientific technology, we can actually knock out the gene for vitamin C. So if you take an animal and you knock out its gene for vitamin C, it's much more vulnerable to develop infections and has a much higher mortality rate. So, you know, I consider sepsis, I mean, vitamin C a stress hormone. What's interesting is it's accumulated almost a hundredfold in the adrenal gland. And in fact, the, the invent, the person who first discovered vitamin C, you know, Albert Swartz Getty, in 1928, actually isolated vitamin C from the adrenal gland of animals. And when, when you stress, the adrenal gland secretes vitamin C. Can you imagine such a thing? Um, <laughs> and you actually need vitamin C to make catecholamines and steroids. So if you block the transporter protein on the adrenal gland, so, you know, vitamin C is taken up by specific transport proteins called SVC2, if you block out, if you knock out the gene or knock out the transport protein, the adrenal gland doesn't concentrate vitamin C and does not make catecholamines and steroids. So it's quite fascinating. You know, I've been studying the adrenal gland for I can't tell you how long and really didn't know the adrenal gland accumulates, stores, and secretes vitamin C. Um, and, you know, vitamin C is essential for the synthesis of a whole host. It's a coenzyme for a whole host, a synthesis of a whole host of enzymes. Obviously, we know it's important in the synthesis of collagen. It's important for the synthesis of catecholamines. It's essential for nitric oxide synthetase. And, in fact, if you're vitamin C deficient, you uncouple nitric oxide synthetase, and instead of the endothelium making nitric, nitric oxide, it makes hydrogen peroxide. So it's involved in a whole host of biochemical processes. But I think the underlying notion is that vitamin C is a stress hormone. It's produced mainly by the liver and kidney in animals. Humans have, have a, fatal, a fatal mutation in the gene and cannot make vitamin C. And we know that when... Um, patients are critically ill, their vitamin C levels are low or undetectable. Um, you know, Helene has done some wonderful work showing this. So, you know, this is a universal phenomenon that critically ill patients have low vitamin C levels. And the sicker they are, the lower the level. And the so level is... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, and the levels are low or undetectable for a number of reasons. One... It's probably consumed because we're consuming the, the, the vitamin and we can't produce it. It's also likely that we have increased urinary losses. So, um, you know, patients actually have an acute scorbitic condition. Wait, so Helene, expand on this some too, because um, both of you talk about one of the other limits is that, it, okay, so if we only have a limited amount of stores because uh, we don't make it ourselves. And if it's part of a stress response, you deplete those stores fairly rapidly. Um, you know, why not just add it to, to tube feed? You know, if, if, if it's, it's a simple phenomenon of we've got to replenish our stores, and, and you guys talk about that some, but if you could expand for our listeners, um, you know, that this is not just an issue of making sure there's more vitamin C in the diet of a critically ill patient. 
Well, do, do, do you want me to answer that? Or sure, Paul? sure. Let's spread, let's spread it around. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> there, well <laughs> I think it has been done, and there's the Meta Plus study from uh, Arthur van Zanten from the Netherlands, and um, they, he gave um, nearly 1,000 grams in his tube feeding a day. And he measured vitamin C concentrations. It, it is in the supplement of the study. And they remain low after 10 days of supplementation. So um, the levels remain ascorbutic uh, level. So um, the problem is that the absorption of vitamin C during critical illness is limited on the one side and probably diminished as well. And um, uh, the, the uptake is limited because there's a transporter in the gut, and the, it has a maximum. And probably the need during critical illness is that high that, well, the uptake from the gut is insufficient. Right. Uh, that's what has been shown in many ways, but this is a very recent study in a nowadays intensive care population receiving immune-enhanced feeding, including a high dose of vitamin C, and vitamin C levels were measured. It was not mentioned in the paper at all, but it is in, in the supplement, and they remain low, so it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, so Paul, you know, obviously, with 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 that background and, and more, and I definitely would encourage the listeners to to read the article uh, carefully in regards to the, the scientific merit uh, on you know how the study was initially conceived, uh, because there's a, it's a very nice literature review on the on the work on vitamin C. Um, Paul, then could you highlight? Um, you talk about it in the article. Um, you know, sort of three landmark or index cases, if you will, that sort of really, you know, got you got you thinking and got your group thinking. And and so, could you highlight those? And we'll recognize them for what they were. They were they were three anecdotes, but they're still very powerful ones. And that's what was the catalyst to lead towards your study here. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think most science starts with observations. And, you know, I mean, you know, you don't just run in and do a large multi-center randomized study. Right. You know, it's based on clinical observations, and that's the history of medicine. So actually what had happened is Alpha Berry or Dr. Berry from VCU, had, he, had, he has written on vitamin C. He did a pilot study in patients with sepsis, and he had sent me his paper, and we kind of spoke about it. it seemed somewhat interesting to me. You know, I read it and put it in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I was on service in the ICU. This was January last year. And we had a 52-year-old lady, I think, who, who was admitted with overwhelming sepsis. And, you know, when you see it, you know it. You, you, right. know, you know this patient is going to die. She was on four presses. Uh, she was in renal failure. She had a DIC. She was comatose. She wasn't making urine. Um, I just knew she was going to die. Uh, she had, she actually had ended up having severe biliary sepsis, and in fact, the next day, her cultures came back. The next day, four out of four bottles grew, both E. coli, e. coli as well as Clostridia perfringens in the blood. So oh, well. you know, and most patients don't survive Clostridia in the blood. So you know, she was really sick. So you know, you sit there, and she was getting the normal stuff, antibiotics, and you know, uh, 
volume protective ventilation and the normal things. And, you know, you think to yourself, well, she's going to die. She's a young woman who is otherwise healthy. You know, what can I do? And I had remembered, you know, the study from Dr. Fowler, and I thought, you know what, this is worth a try. So I quickly pulled out the paper to look at the doses. And then I thought to myself, you know what, it seems to work kind of similar to steroids. Let me just throw in some steroids. You know, it can't do any harm. So the first patient, we gave a combination of um, vitamin C, IV, and corticosteroids, and I had no expectation that anything would happen. I went home, and the next morning when I came to work, she was off all four presses. Um, her blood pressure was normal. She was awake. She was really making urine, and we extubated her two hours later. She then left the unit two days later, and I said to myself, wow, what just happened there? Right. So, you know, it was like one of those eureka moments. Right, but, a, very, know, was, a, a very, very powerful anecdotal experience that, without a doubt, like you said, leads to an observation. Yeah, and you know what I mean? It was just so unusual. I mean, we know that patients who are on presses, you know, the average duration of presses is 54 hours. You know, what we saw, you just don't see. But, you know, you, you know, it was one case, so then I started reading more avidly about, you know, vitamin C and steroids, and the idea of thiamine came to me because in, you know, in order to metabolize vitamin C goes to dehydroscorbic acid, which goes to oxalate, and that pathway um, is influenced by thiamine levels. So if you're thiamine deficient, one theoretically gets accumulation of oxalate. So I thought, well, let's throw in thiamine. And it was just at the same time that Dr. Danino from Harvard had published his study on thiamine in sepsis. So I thought, you know what, it can't do any harm. So, you know, along we going, and then about a week later, we had a patient who was paraplegic who came in with a severe urosepsis, again, on three presses. And I thought, you know what, let's try it again. And again, the next day, he was off all of his presses. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then I was on, like, two weeks later, um, we had a gentleman in his 40s who had community-acquired pneumonia. I took over the weekend, and my colleague said to me, you know what, you know, he's got community-acquired pneumonia. I'm treating him according to ATS guidelines. We're doing all the right stuff, and yet his pneumonia is progressive. He's becoming more hypoxic. So I then knew what I needed to do. So I said, okay, we give it another chance. And I'm telling you, the next day his infiltrates had halved, his PAO to FIO2 ratio had improved, and within three days he was extubated. So, you know, after those three cases, you know, they're three cases, but they were very powerful. And, yes. you know, it wasn't just an accident. Um, and then, you know, with all the basic science and with our clinical observation, we thought, gee, whiskers, this is something really cool. So based on that, it became standard of care in our unit. But, you know, at the beginning, we really weren't sure. So what we did, and I think this is important because there's been some misunderstanding, is we selected our patients who were at highest risk of organ dysfunction and highest risk of dying. So, because clearly this was uncharted territory. So what we did is we select our patients with severe sepsis and septic shock who had a procalcitonin greater than two. And I think that's, that's important because 
um, what we then so, so we, we we selected out the sickest patients, and we noted you know we we noted we made the same observations, and you know it was re- repeatable time after time after time. Then I thought you know what it's time we kind of do a retrospective study, you know compile the data so we can actually see what we're doing, and I thought it was important to report it. So that's when we came with the idea of doing the retrospective piece. So the right. way, and, uh, no, go ahead. I wanted I wanted to ask Helene to jump in in regards to the thoughts of the patient selection. Um, you know, the and and if you could also expand on that too, Paul. The the, the your the justification for the the severity of the sepsis slash septic shock and the use of the procalcitonin, just so that um, depending on where our listeners are are from, whether that test is available, etc., so they can try to generalize in their own mind. Um, the type of patient that you were enrolling. Yes. Yeah, so, so you know, I, Helene can 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 jump in, but I, I thought I would just kind of finish on this thought because yeah, it, it is important. No, no, no just finish. <laughs> You're important, Paul. Yeah, sure. So, so what we then did is we we did a retrospectively we try to match as best we can patients who met similar criteria but had a procalcitonin more than two. Um, and obviously, you know, their, their Apache score was reasonably high. Their mortality was 39%. They predicted it was 40%. One of the criticisms people have made was that the mortality was extraordinarily high in the control group. But what they don't realize is that these weren't all comers. These were, you know, we selected out patients who we thought were at most benefit from vitamin C, cocktail and who had highest risk of organ dysfunction. So if you actually look at our procalcitonin level, which we can talk about later, in the treatment group, the mean was 73. In the control group, the procalcitonin was 45. The biggest study to date, which has actually looked at procalcitonin, all patients with sepsis, this was the Moses study, the mean procalcitonin was 3.8. 3.8. So yeah. what I'm saying is, is that this was a really sick group of patients. Once, you know, once we, we looked at our data and found, wow, this really changes the natural history of this disease, we then completely changed our inclusion criteria because we said, you know, if this is working on the sickest patients, this is also going to work on patients who are not that sick. So currently we treat, if patients are sick enough to come to our ICU with sepsis, they get treated. And I think that's kind of important because we changed, you know, after we, we, we analyzed the data and put it together, we changed our, our inclusion criteria or our selection of patients. So let me, I want to play devil's advocate for a second. So, um, and, and because I want to then ask about from a safety perspective. So based on a retrospective study with very limited sample size, you've changed how you practice clinically in your intensive care unit. As you, If you step back objectively, you can imagine several of our colleagues around the country and around the world 
might have trouble with a major shift in how we practice critical care on such a limited study. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. What's your answer to questions like that? And from the perspective that from you and Helene, um, you know, vitamin C on one level probably is an extremely safe substance, but there is at least the potential, um, for, as we were talking about earlier, with oxalate and potential for damage to the kidneys. So um, if you could expand on that, both of you, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I'll chime in first, and then Helene can talk about the oxalate or yeah. expand or what I'm saying. So, you know, when you're at the bedside and you have a sick patient, you have an obligation to do what you think is in the best patient's interest. And, you know, there's no question of doubt that this changes the natural history of the disease. Whether you look at creatinine, whether you look at change in SOFA score, whether you look at change in procalcitonin, whether you change in pressure requirements or outcome, whichever one you look at, it has such a dramatic impact. And it got to the point that the nurses in our ICUs said to us, it's unethical not to give this because it, I mean, they see it every single day. And, you know, when I told my colleagues, you know, we have these patients and they're not dying, they say to me, what are you smoking? What is the problem? That's impossible. But if you actually at the bedside and see it day in and day out, you believe it. It's almost like disputing gravity. You know, it's there. We see it all the time. And I do understand why people are skeptical because it seems too good to be true. But the interesting thing is, you know, there are a few of my colleagues or our colleagues who said, you know what? This sounds too good to be true, but I have a patient who's dying. I'm going to try it. And the remarkable thing is they said to me, you know what? The patient was dying. He, we tried this, and you know what? He was off presses the next day, and he left ICU with no organ failure. So, you know, it's absolutely reproducible. Now, obviously, you know, we were – you know, the dose we use, and Helene may, may, may have different ideas, is kind of on the lowish side. Um, and, in fact, if you read the package insert, you know, the package insert for vitamin C says that it's intravenous use is indicated in patients with an acute deficiency, which our patients have, and up to a dose of six grams a day. So, in fact, we actually using the drug according to the labeling of the drug. So the, the, the biggest potential problem is hyperoxalosis and renal dysfunction. And that's why, you know, when we started, we were very diligent in monitoring renal function. And, and uh, you know, Helene has done a lot of work on oxalate, so I'll let her butt in afterwards. But when we started, we actually measured serum and urine oxalate levels. The urine oxalate goes up. The serum really didn't go up. So we then stopped measuring oxalate except in the very high-risk patients. So we recently had a patient who people would think we were insane to treat them. This was a renal transplant patient who came in in overt septic shock. He was also toxic with tacrolimus, and he had BK virus nephropathy. So he was really in trouble. And then we thought, should we treat him or not? Because, you know, he's going to die from his sepsis. So we actually treated him, but we monitored his oxalate levels because we were concerned, and his oxalate levels were all in the safe range. So I think it's a theoretical problem, but in the dose we use, I think it's really safe and not an issue. Um, but, you know, obviously Helene has done 
a lot of work on this, and you know maybe she can add to what I've said. Yes, Helene, go ahead and expand because I, I think it's extremely important because the again from the perspective of devil's advocate or any criticism in the absence of a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial from both a safety perspective and efficacy, you know one argument it sounds like you're making, Paul, is here's the data and there's not really a downside, and so. Helene, if you could expand on what at least is the potential downside so that if people are going to think about incorporating this, they're at least aware of what to be looking for. So let's talk about high doses of vitamin C in a safety perspective. Well, um, there are a lot of things to to say. Um, I think um, the results are uh, impressive. I was flabbergasted when I, uh, I saw the results. And um, this is what happens when people read results. The, the, the results cause a mindset among the intensivists at the bedside in charge of caring for patients with severe sepsis. So, but they are also confused. They ask, should I give my patients the cocktail or not? Um, so there is a difference. On the one side, there's the doctor at the bedside who has to care for his patients. On the other side, there's the scientific point. And this is really important because the evidence for this treatment is still weak. The trial was non-randomized. It was single-center, performed in a medical intensive care population. It was open-labeled. And open before after design always tends to overestimate the benefit of a therapy because the attention to detail entails that the intervention group might have gotten better care. And Dr. Merrick at the bedside, well, <laughs> that's <laughs> <a> good care. <laughs> On the other hand, and I think this is a strong point of the trial, the before-after design, design made that all patients were included, and this increases the generalizability of the results to daily practice. Because if we will do a randomized controlled trial, and we have to, we do not mimic real life due to a large list of inclusion and exclusion criteria and the need for informed consent. So we, we, we miss about half or two-thirds of our patients, and this causes the study population to be biased. Nevertheless, although my opinion is that the likelihood that a cocktail works is extremely high, I think the statement that cure for sepsis has been found is probably the case in Marek's department but it should be tested on a larger scale. And in general, every positive trial needs to be repeated. And I can very well understand that Paul doesn't want to do it because he sees that it works, but it should be done in another setting. And really, I honestly hope that the impressive results of this trial will convince funding agencies to support pragmatic trials with a minimum of in and exclusion criteria studying the cocktail. And this is what we really need. And 
um, there are several trials having shown benefit of vitamin C alone. And there is presently a large randomized controlled trial being performed in, by, by, by the group of Fowler and Natarayan. But the combination is not tested before. Well, this is one thing that I, I, I want to say. <laughs> and um, I think Paul has to be lauded for having done this and having made the start to this very important new treatment. But I think we should, uh, well, the, the treatment earns to be studied in a, in a, in a multi-centered way. Well, and then the question of those. Um, well, there is not so much literature in the critically ill population, but there are several randomized control trials uh, using one to three grams per day and showing an earlier improvement of organ failure. So there are no signs in the critical care situation of any harm to the kidney. And I think an important thing with oxalate, oxalate crystallization is that it needs time. And the idea of this high, rather, oh well, I think it's an intermediate dose of vitamin C, but of this dose of vitamin C is that this been given, it will be given for three or four days and not for weeks or weeks or as in the, in the council treatment for months and months. So it is a limited period of time. And secondly, um, I think the, the thiamine is a very good idea. It would be very interesting to, to, to examine the difference between vitamin C with and without uh, thiamine and, and study oxalate excretion. And thirdly, uh, you need at least a three-gram dose per day to treat deficiency. So, and Mark, uh, well, in his cocktail, it, it, he gives six, four times one and a half grams, so it's six grams a day. So it, it, it is a way, just first day, to correct your deficiency and thereafter to go to slightly higher levels. But, well, um, I don't think it... It, about, it should be proven, of course, and this can only be proven in a, in a randomized controlled trial. Uh, in fact, we measured oxalate uh, urinary excretions, and we, were, we are working on a manuscript. It, it has been published in ex abstract form now, and we see that oxalate excretions increase, but not tremendously, and... Uh, uh, excretions are about twice the upper level if we give twice five gram a day. So that's a higher dose than Marek uh, administered. Um, well, uh, I think many trials in sepsis give much higher doses. So it's, it's an intermediate dose that Marek chose. Well, Paul, you were trying to stay within the at least of the guidelines of the product insert for the vitamin that you had, as you stated. But let me let me throw out there again, just trying to to be. Calm.
contrary, I mean, one of the arguments then for some more methodologic studies before directly incorporating this is a dosing strategy. Um, you know, are we giving too much? Are we not giving enough? Um, what is the ideal dose? Is there something we should be measuring first to determine what level of deficiency you have um, for both the dose given or frequency given or the amount of days given? I mean, has that that hasn't been worked out? Um, and yeah, you know, so, there, you know, that's where some of the concern I think has risen. Yeah, let me answer Helene's or respond please, to please. Helene's uh, comments and then yours. So, first, I agree with everything that she said, and you know what we did is this is a real life experience. The only patients we excluded were patients who were comfort care or had limitations of care. So we included sequential patients. So it's a real-life experience, which I think is important, because if you look at all the sepsis studies, you know, when you look at all the exclusion criteria, you know, the the number of patients enrolled is small. So if you actually look at Corticus, Corticus study actually only enrolled 5% of eligible patients. So it really doesn't reflect real-life experience. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I absolutely agree. This has to be reproduced all over the entire world. Just, you know, I think, and I will encourage people to study this in whatever way they can because, you know, if it's valid, it will be valid everywhere. And the good news is there are some groups now that are actually starting an RCT. Um, There's an RCT starting in Athens, actually, next week. Um, So, you know, that's really good news that, you know, people are studying this, they're collecting data, and the more studies that are done, the better. And, you know, we have no ownership on this. The the second point has to do with the dosing. So, you know, we initially followed uh, Dr. Fowler's dosing strategy. So, you know, he, he had two doses, 50 and 200 milligrams per kilogram per day over four days. We kind of started off at 100 milligrams per kilogram, which is about 1.5 Q6 in a 70-kilogram person. One of the issues we have here in Norfolk is we have a very big population, big, excuse the pun, of really Mm. obese patients. And so these patients were getting very high doses. And then we kind of figured out that this is water-soluble. It distributes in the lean mass, not the fat mass. So that's why we kind of switched then to um, a standard dose of 1.5 grams. Now, we have some um, dose response data which suggests that that's probably the kind of correct ballpark, but clearly more studies need to be done. So one of the big questions is whether we need a loading dose. So I know Helene gives a loading dose or has talked about a loading dose. So that is a question we don't know. The other question is whether you give it as a bolus or continuous infusion. That we don't know either. Um, what we have noted, and it is kind of remarkable, is that within 48 hours, the patient is like a 1,000 times better. So people have said to me, well, why don't you just give it for 48 hours and then stop? And I don't know the answer to that. So I think, you know, we're starting this journey. We certainly need more data. There's no question. And we need more studies, which will help us refine what we do. Something very fascinating which we noted, and it is quite fascinating, is so we looked at lactate and white cell count and a whole bunch of biomarkers, but we found procalcitonin to be exquisitely sensitive to this 
therapeutic protocol and that the, the response is absolutely reproducible like day follows night in that what happens is it seems like we switch off procalcitonin production and that it falls exponentially. So if it starts off at 100, the next day it's 50, the next day it's 25. And that happens reproducibly. Now, we've had four patients who within 24 hours, their procalcitonin didn't fall. And then that was a red flag for us. And we said, aha. And in fact, what happened is the one patient had a perforated gut, which we completely missed. His abdomen was soft. But my fellow said, well, let's do a chest and body, chest and abdomen CT. And we actually picked up a perf, which was really asymptomatic. The other two patients, we were using the wrong antibiotic. So the procalcitonin seems to be a uniquely sensitive market to the biological response. How it actually works, I have no idea, but it <laughs> is kind of interesting. The other point that are really, really important to make, because, you know, obviously this has got a lot of publicity, and people think you just give vitamin C and you cure sepsis. That's not the case. So really, you know, what's important to cure sepsis, and I think you can cure it, is one early diagnosis. It's just so important that we have to diagnose it early. Two is you have to give the right antibiotics in the right dose at the right time. So, you know, we're not saying don't give antibiotics. The third is source control. It's just so important. You know, if you have, uh, have a chest abscess or you have endocarditis, You've got to have source control. Is that this is not going to work unless you have the right antibiotic and you have source control. The next thing is you need a rational approach to fluids. I think this is really important because what happens is, you know, we use a restrictive strategy. We start norepi early, but by 24 hours, the norepi is gone, and the patients have a minimal positive fluid balance with minimal organ dysfunction. So if you, you know, resuscitate them with 10 liters of fluid, what you're going to happen is patients are going to have organ dysfunction from volume overload. And then obviously you need a multidisciplinary approach to patient care. You know, you need nurses that are, know what they're doing, therapists. You need a whole supportive team. So, you know, people have got the idea, you know, you just give them vitamin C and you go, and they're going to get better. And that's really not the case. It's, it's a comprehensive approach to critical care. And this is just one of the pieces. No, that is a key point. The other thing in your article, you do highlight the, the sort of established protocols that you're following, which, which you just uh, uh, listed uh, amongst others as well, lung protective strategy, et cetera, um, so that it's not being done in a vacuum. It's being done in the, within the, the confines of, of you know, what we considered modern critical care. This was just the additional uh, phenomena, uh, you know, n additional therapy that you've added to the to the current mix in regards to minimal sedation, fluid restrictive strategy, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And you know, you know, the other thing which is fascinating is actually there are randomized studies. So people say we need randomized studies, but in fact, there are randomized studies. I found a randomized controlled trial in patients with pancreatitis, which clearly is non-bacterial infection. And patients were treated with vitamin C in much the same dose we did, and they showed a much rapid resolution, a much higher cure rate with less complications. 
There are multiple studies in contrast-induced nephropathy showing that vitamin C reduces the risk of contrast nephropathy, which I think is important because people are concerned about the renal toxicity, but actually it's been shown to protect against contrast-induced nephropathy. And what is even more fascinating is there are three randomized controlled trials looking at the use of vitamin C prior to induction of anesthesia with etomidate. So as we know, etomidate switches off adrenal synthesis. There are three studies which actually show that if you pre-dose them with vitamin C, it actually prevents that happening. It actually restores um, cortisol synthesis. So, you know, there's data out there. If you look for it, there is data out there which is pretty convincing. Um, you know, what people want is, you know, the cardiology kind of studies where you do 40,000 patients and, you know, you show this tiny difference. So there is data out there. Obviously, we need more data, but I think there's sufficient data to be confident that it's firstly safe. I think that's really important. And secondly, that there is a strong signal towards benefit. But clearly, as I said, we need to do more studies. Um, you know, some people have, in, it's kind of humorous, but, you know, because Norfolk is a Navy base, in fact, Norfolk is the biggest naval base in the world, people think that only works in Norfolk because we have all of these sailors who have scurvy. <laughs> which which well. I thought was really amusing because Helena shown, you know, that in Netherlands, I don't know, maybe they, they have lots of sailors there, they, they <laughs> acutely ill patients of vitamin C deficient. <laughs> well, there is a, a, a lot of, of, of literature from all kinds, from all uh, 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 parts of the world showing that the critically ill patients are really have really have scurvy like concentrations. Uh, it, 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 it's 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 uh, but it's, it's always studies from France and from from everywhere. So um, mostly mostly it's just oh, fun to say scurvy. Also, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think also from Switzerland and Hungary, <laughs> so they are in the middle <laughs> of not sailing. So it is an acute deficiency due to an, uh, an acute high need. For example, leukocytes have a very high intracellular concentration of, um, uh, of vitamin C, and they only live for three days. So they, there is a very high um, um, making of new leukocytes that die subsequently or are, well, being uh, uh, lost. And that's the way that it's probably that, that vitamin C cannot be rescued. There is a way of rescuing and um, uh, re uh, uh, the vitamin C, but it, it's probably insufficient during the acute inflammatory response. Right. So. One of the other things which is quite fascinating, actually, is if you actually look at the history of scurvy, most patients with either acute, so, you know, you have acute scurvy and chronic scurvy, but either scurvy, patients with scurvy have altered mental status, they have hallucinations, they have uh, cognitive problems. What we've noted anecdotally, and obviously this is just anecdotally because we didn't really report, record it that well, is that none of our patients developed delirium, none of them. Mm. And I, I think... It's important because, as I said, vitamin C is concentrated in white cells in the adrenal gland and the brain. 
And in order to make dopamine, serotonin, or epinephrine, you actually need, you need vitamin C. So my theory is, is that you know, one of the reasons for ICU delivery may be vitamin C deficient with decreased production of neurotransmitters, and this may help them. And there actually is data to prove this. There are a number of randomized controlled trials in patients with depression, and if you add vitamin C to fluoxetine, Prozac, it actually improves their depressive symptoms. So patients who got both had less depression. There's also a fascinating study in hospitalized patients in which they were randomized to vitamin D or vitamin C and actually assessed their mood. And patients who got vitamin C were much happier and had a better mood. So I think it actually also affects neurotransmission and cognition. And it may, and this obviously is a big may, have a major impact on ICU delirium, which would obviously be a fantastic thing. No, I think if nothing else, the, the, I think what we've highlighted in regards to the, the uh, therapeutic possibilities here is it also strikes me that you've opened up a, a large avenue for a lot of different clinical investigations across the country and around the world. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the way I see this is exactly, this is the beginning of the journey. You're not, we're not, you know, and there's absolutely no question of doubt we need more studies, you know, dosing studies, clinical studies, outcome studies. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting um, new therapeutic approach. That's, a, I think, a, a perfect I, I, capstone I, statement. I agree with Paul. <laughs> I agree with Paul that we need all kinds of studies, and I don't think that we uh, should build up from the bottom and first do a dose finding and, and things like that, because it is so complicated. We don't know which uh, concentration in the blood is optimal at that time. It's, it's, it's probably higher than normal. So we, we probably need supernormal concentrations in the acute phase. So um, that's the problem with a dose study. You should link the dose uh, to clinical science and clinical improvement. And um, uh, so that's uh, the Fowler did in his uh, phase one study. And, um, well, the groups were small and he couldn't show, but it seems that there was a higher or an earlier recovery from organ failure in the higher dose. Um, um, so you should do clinical studies together with the dose studies, of course. And, of yes. course, we should measure plasma concentrations. But, well, if we know plasma concentration, then the answer is so what? Uh, it's not deficient, but is it high enough? We don't know. So there should be uh, different studies using different doses. And uh, I think the, 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 I think the, the, the thing where Paul should be lauded for is that he um, he uh, put um, he showed us that the vitamin C and hydrocortisone enhance each other's effects, and so it, study should be done with the combination. And um, if we, well, the, the, the photo study is just vitamin C. It's not a combination um, between vitamin C and hydrocortisone. It, 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 it would be a nice idea to do, uh, um, well, 
post hoc analysis if there's a difference when hydrocortisone is given as well or things like that. But um, the combination has has not been studied before. So it's 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 Paul who did it as a first. <laughs> yeah. So, guys, we've been talking for a little bit, and I want to be mindful of our listeners' time, and, and I think a lot of really excellent points have come across, and, and you know, we've been able to highlight the work done. What haven't we talked about? Is there anything uh, for Helene or Paul that, that, that sort of a, a final thought or, or something that we need to expand upon? Yes, yeah, so just one thing I think Helene just brought it up is what's fascinating is the interaction between the three drugs which we just came up with fortuitously. I think that's kind of critical. You know, we have a basic science paper, which is now under review, which has clearly shown that vitamin C and steroids act synergistically, um, which is quite fascinating. And we've looked at various molecular pathways. Obviously, what's interesting is how does thiamine, you know, add to the mix? So, you know, I think it's important that this is not just vitamin C. It's vitamin C, it's steroids, and it's thiamine. Um, and it's ready for four days, which, which is, you know, you know, as Helene said, the problem with vitamin C toxicity has been in patients with cancer given high doses for prolonged periods of time. This is four right. days. And right. I think that's critical because there's been you know, people have said, well, you can't give steroids. Well, you know, the dose of steroids we use are stress doses for four days. They can't possibly be harmful. And I think the same holds for vitamin C, and obviously thiamine is safe. So, you know, I think that's the key to to this puzzle. Perfect. Helene, any other final thoughts? Well, I think I, I fully agree with Paul. And, um, uh, uh, well, I, I, um, I, I think we need further studies to understand and um, but still, there is a, a lot of, of of evidence, and also for the vitamin C. And and I think the the, the group from um, Natarayan should be um, well. They, they did a lot of studies, and they recently showed. And I think this is another interesting point that has not mentioned yet that uh, vitamin C increases the levels of several endogenous antimicrobial proteins. So um, it, it, it enhances immune defense. And there are uh, a lot of other um, mechanisms by which vitamin C uh, enhances immune defense. So it, 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 it's good for the microcirculation. It, it, it prevents capillary leakage or heals capillary leakage. It reduces the inflammatory response, and at the same time, it augments the production of endogenous antimicrobial proteins. So it, 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 it's fantastic. And then I didn't mention yet the, the, the production of noradrenaline and vasopressin, that it, it is essential for the synthesis. So it's, it, there are so many parts where, where vitamin C works, um, but it should be shown in a large trial because there could be an unforeseen adverse event, uh, possibly in a, in a subset of patients, so, um, but I'm convinced that it works. <laughs> Excellent. But we, we need confirmation. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
All right. Well, both of you, thank you so much for your time. I know you're both extremely busy, and I appreciate you taking time out to discuss uh, this article in your editorial. Sure. Thanks, Thank you very much. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much.